Greetings, superstars. Welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz, your one-stop 5D superhero listening spot. I'm Danny Katz, transformation agent, empowered badassery coach, and quantum languaging consultant. And I'm so happy you're here. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated version of yourself. We do this by sharing quantum languaging upgrades, conscious communication tools, witchy life hacks, planetary service announcements, and high-vibing, deep-diving conversations with original thinkers, visionary weirdos, and rebel badasses. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. <laughs> Be sure to hit that subscribe button and to join us on Locals at dannycats.locals.com where you can watch the video versions of all our episodes including those that are a little bit too spicy for the non-free speech friendly platforms. And it's also where paid subscribers can tune into the second half of all my interviews and enjoy a plethora of other bonuses, including live monthly Q&As, unpublished writings and videos, and behind the scenes intel. Join our quickly growing tribe of high vibe superstars at dannycats.locals.com. Okay, now that we've got all our housekeeping out of the way, let's enjoy today's episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today I am joined once again by astrologer, historian, cultural critic extraordinaire, Robert Phoenix. As Robert and I felt like we had only scratched the surface of the real topic at hand, being the capital T, they, in our last episode, we decided to hop back in the mix sooner than later. Before we dive in to my super deep diving, fascinating conversation with Robert Phoenix, I'm reminding you to hit that subscribe button. As well, as is the case with all of my podcasts, the first half is free for everyone, and the second half is available for paid subscribers on either my Patreon or my Locals page. So you can find the second half of this conversation with Robert and all of my second half conversations at patreon.com slash dannycats or at dannycats.com dot locals.com where for as little as two dollars a month you get access to all of my second half conversations and oodles of bonus material with that i think our housekeeping is complete buckle up and enjoy my conversation with robert phoenix I get the sultry voice. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Good. I heard you were on Just Frankly last night. Is that right? Yeah, quite frankly. Quite frankly. Quite frankly. Yeah. Do you listen oh. to that show? No. Okay. <laughs> but th that doesn't mean that I don't, I wouldn't like it or probably 
you don't think highly of it. I just don't, I don't listen to much stuff. Yeah, I get it. I'm so, similar. How do you hear I, this? Um, so, so um, somebody from my chat told me about it. How was it? Was it good? It was good. He, he really put me on the spot, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was good. And uh, I get to come back next month. What, what did he put you on the spot with? Um, we were talking about language and which words mean the opposite of what they think they mean, such that we're kind of curving our quantum field. And I use the example of share, meaning to violently divide. But then I kept using the word share because I, in like my laundry list of to-dos, I still have yet to hone in on the just right upgrade for share. So I got kind of tripped up on that. Um, well, what, what, what would be the just right upgrade? I mean, the thing is, is it's so contextual, right? So if I'm offering you, you know, please pass this around to other people at the table. If, if we're talking about food, if we're talking about uh, a podcast, please send this to your friends and family. Like it's still a bit clunky. I feel like we need a new word altogether. So, so are you equating share with sheer like shearing something? Well, that's its etym etymological roots. And part of the way that I work with language is the coding and the etymology and how that's coding our collective field, even when we're not aware of it, you know, like government meaning mind control. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Interesting. You know, this is the one thing that I think the feminist kind of got right is the language thing. Ooh, in what way? Because they, they they were like one of the first, I guess, um, would they be postmodern? I don't know. But they were one of the first groups to look at how language was, was used. I mean, so it comes out of critical theory, obviously. Right. But they're the ones that like, well, look, it's his story, like his story, right? right coming from the, the feminist perspective. So um, I used to, my, I had a girlfriend in college who was a feminist, but I didn't mind her. She was the one that, that <laughs> kind of got me switched on to the language thing. Yeah, so. I see, there's some, I, see, I feel like it's case by case, but there are larger pieces like, I know someone in town, she doesn't offer mentorship. She offers femtorship. Right. That's and a little I, over like, the top. Yeah, I kind of roll my eyes at that because men actually means mind. Um, and it's a little bit clunky and it just feels like we're, we're div dithering with like such insignificant trifles. And I realize as I'm saying that like language is everything and that's my focus of study, but sometimes I feel like it can get, we can take it to these extremes when it comes to the gendering and non-gendering of language. Like I don't really care about history or mentorship or if, if examples in books are he and him, like that doesn't spin me out. Right. Right. No, you're, you're at another level with it. So. Thanks. So yeah. I see you've been playing in the Facebook realm and enjoying it. Well, you know, I used to be on Facebook a lot and um, I just did it like a drive by and just said, Oh yeah, I remember being here. And really I met a lot of really cool people through Facebook. Um, and then I had like this massive kind of, response to that one one little post and it was cool so yeah and i had some interesting conversations and uh, reconnected with an old client um so yeah i'll probably spend some more time there nice it's nice yeah. to see you there 
Yeah. Do you, do you hang out there on Facebook? I definitely don't hang out there. Um, I sometimes touch in, I'm so shadow banned there that it's, it's really an exercise in futility that I do post anything there, but for like the nine people that they allow to see it, it allows us to stay connected. Right. So that was one of the reasons why I stopped going there because I felt like there was that. And also there was, there was just a lot of stuff coming out around. I mean, I always knew it was happening, but you know, the, the Zuckerberg fuckery and, you know, just really going all in on the last election and spending all this money to skew everything. And, and, you know, it's just like, I don't, I don't want to support that. I don't want my eyeballs supporting that. You know, and Twitter's no better. I mean, Twitter is just as bad, but at that time I was just like, I'm kind of over this. Yeah. I totally respect that. I had a similar perspective with YouTube after getting like multiple strikes and then they changed their user agreement. I was like, I can't support this. So I deleted all my videos and then just watched all my, you know, like my whole audience shrink. And after a year and a half, I realized like my great big stance isn't changing anything. It's just hurting me. It's frustrating, you know, because I feel a little bit out of integrity in engaging these platforms. And I don't understand why, why we don't have class action suits going with all of us content creators who are being completely fucked over by them breaking our terms of agreement. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how a court would rule on something like that. I just, and how long it would take too, right? Cause they could just roll this thing out two years, three years. Yeah, totally. I, yeah. I, I keep my screenshots and like all of my attempts at getting customer customer support just in case that that someday happens. I'm not litigious myself, so I don't really want to engage that process. And I don't think the judicial system is any more ethical than big tech. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, that's why I just set out to do my own platform. Yeah. And how's that working for you? It's good. I mean, so I have two other shows that I do on YouTube. So I stay in touch with YouTube, but those shows I'm not going to get strikes or banned for. I mean, unless the content is like super egregious, like I do my interview show on Friday and by and large, it's definitely not vanilla, but I'm not talking about things on that show that I talk about on my show and the Sunday night show is astrology. And, um, and I've had some strikes on that, but again, I'm not going to get banned for it. So, you know, I've tried to continue to build what I'm doing through YouTube. And I also convert my daily show into a podcast. So I'm trying to reach podcast listeners too. I I'm mean, doing the same. It's okay. I mean, I, my, my stats are pretty similar. Like I'll get between, 500 and 900 people listening on one of my videos, but those are 500, 900 dedicated people, right? right? Those are dedicated people. And, you know, what do you, do you, would you, do you want to have, I don't know, 30,000 people watching your video and, you know, maybe 10% giving a shit or 5% giving a shit, or do you want to have like a thousand people that are really into it? And support you by subbing and, you know, I'll take the latter model. 
Yeah, I'm the same. You know, like after I left YouTube, I moved over to BitChute and I only have a couple hundred followers there, but like I'll get like a couple hundred views on every video. Like they're really devoted and they really care. And so that's mm -hmm. more meaningful. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's like, um, you, you know, if, if you, if you have 20 people that are really, really impactful and powerful, those 20 people are worth a thousand people. Yeah. Super fans, Seth Godin, super fans. Yeah. But even just, yeah, there's that. And just, you know, like theoretically there were 12 apostles, right? Yep. Well, there weren't 5,000 apostles. Right. There were 12. Right. But those 12 probably equaled 5,000. Right. So I think there's something to be said for the quality in the, you know, in the, in the, in the distillation of those people versus, you know, the, the shotgun effect and just having a lot of people. Yeah. I agree. I agree. So yeah. I know that we, we spoke only a month ago. And the reason why I wanted to have you back so quickly was because I felt like we barely scratched the surface of the larger conversation about the they and like to really dive in and dial in who the they are. And I also wanted to spend a little bit more time unpack, unpacking the Hazarians because you know, I've, I had done some research on it, quite a bit of research on it before you and I chatted, and then I've done a bit more since, and yep. I just want to see like where our stories intersect. As I understood it, the Khazarians were a tribe in what is now Ukraine, which I think inched into Turkey as well. Right. And also Kazakhstan, right? So it'd be Ukraine, Georgia, Turkey, Kazakhstan, and their their DNA is kind of it's it's kind of Turkic, right? They have kind of a Turkic DNA, but they're also there's also strains that connect them to the Finns. Like they have a Finnish. Um, so this is because I've been doing some more research as well since the last mm -hmm. time we talked. Cool. And um, so yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about. Because they're, 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 it's interesting because there's these two schools, right? There's this one school which says that the Khazarians morph into the Ashkenazis. Right. There is some truth to that, but that's not the totality of it. Mm -hmm. Because when you get into the Hapler group, um, the Ashkenazis and the Khazarians don't share the same Hapler group. Like their Hapler what, group is. What's the Hapler group? The ha Hapler group is like genetic markers. Okay. So they, so it's not like a one-to-one -one match. Like if you were to take somebody who was say a Polish Jew, who would be an Ashkenazi mm -hmm. and look at their DNA, it would be different than theoretically somebody who would come from the region that we're talking about theoretically, but there is some crossover. So it's not like there's this one, like, okay, well, we were here and we just migrated to the West. There's a bit of that, but it's more complex because those haplogroups also show up in other countries like Germany, parts of Spain, and even um, Italy. Mm -hmm. So there is a crossover between the Khazarian haplogroup and Ashkenazim haplogroup 
but it, like I said, it's not one-to-one. It's not like, oh, well, here's this progression that you're from here to here to here. Right. So it, it's a bit more complex in a lot of ways. And, um, and then there are clearly a group of people and even scholars like, you know, on the Jewish side of things that say, well, this is where we come from. Like these are our people. And there's another group that says, well, no, that that's not true. So there's not one unifying theme and principle that says like, this is who we were. This is where we came from, but there are things that connect them. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, I mean, it's kind of, you know, when you get down into the, the, like the, the nuts and bolts of theoretically who we are, where we come from, things get very complex. Right. Very, very complex. Like for instance, you know, I was, I was, um, I was watching these guys today on, uh, they're on the show called Moonshiners. Do you know Moonshiners? No. So Moonshiners is this, uh, it's a show that I think A&E has been doing for quite a while. And it's, it's basically these guys who go out into like the, you know, the woods in Louisiana and Mississippi and they, they make moonshine. Mm-hmm. So they follow, and they've been following different people along the way and so there were these these two um like they decided to get inclusive so they have these two moonshiners who are black and these black guys are set they have a really cool still and everything but they're from new iberia louisiana Mm -hmm. and i thought wow that's interesting because there is an iberia right and iberia was connected to spain Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so what's going on here? You know, what's happening with these guys who are living in New Iberia? Why would they call it New Iberia? You know, you know, it's like New Amsterdam. Do you, you know, what's going on here? Right. What's the connection? What's the connection? Who are these people? Where did they come from? And so I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a big kind of Tartaria freak, mm-hmm. even though like, I don't think. What you know, when people look at the United States and all these weird buildings and stuff like that, um, they like to use the word Tartaria, but that's I don't think I don't think that was the name for it here. Mm-hmm. But when you get into Tartaria, you invariably wind up in Kazaria too, because the, the Kazarians have been also also called Tartars because they have a very similar turkic genetic dna bloodline and also what is the the geography that tartaria supposedly existed in like what's the modern day geography all right so the modern day geography is sort of ukraine kazakhstan and east right okay theoretically so you're you're kind of in that inner zone between outer russia and outer mongolia right that whole area and then kazakhstan um what else um yeah kazakhstan georgia kyrgyzstan like that would have been considered theoretic well that's considered today to be theoretically tartaria okay but there, but there are people that use the word tartaria for a global civilization and um I'm, i think i don't think it, it's I don't think that that name is that comprehensive for everything, but we use it because it's something we can name, right? We can name it and bring it back to Kazaria and the Khazars. The Khazars 
be, and I think it might have to do with their Finnish roots have also shown up as being fair skinned and red haired, mm -hmm. which if you've followed the track of fair skinned and red haired people, um, you will see that they show up in a lot of very unusual places. Mm -hmm. For instance, China, they have the ancient mummies of China, the ones that actually predate Chinese civilization are fair skinned and red haired. Mm -hmm. You'll find fair skinned and red haired people amongst the, the Cherokee, right? You'll find fair skinned and red haired people in places like New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And there are stories of these people who began their migration in other places. So it's very interesting to look at, you know, the whole, the whole Khazarian story as it relates also to Tartaria. Um, now, is it all unified under, you know, one king and one group? Again, I mean, that's, you know, the story that we know in terms of, you know, the conversion um, that took place with King Bulan, like that is one story. Mm -hmm. And was it a unified, you know, area, kingdom? Um, you know, that's that I wouldn't say it's debatable, but I think it's worthy of exploring because some of the other things I've been reading is that there were also some, you know, Muslim factions that were in and around Khazaria as yep. well. So it wasn't just this complete conversion to Judaism, but there is that, right? And it's interesting. It's very, very interesting. And the other thing that, that and I don't know if you like dove into this part of the discussion, but it's the battles between the Khazars and the Russians. Have you, have you explored yeah. that? Yeah. And so for me, like when all this stuff started to blow up over the past few months with Russia and Ukraine, my immediate thought was like, oh, this is this is that thing, because as I understand it, the then head of the Khazarian tribe, who was ostensibly a Rothschild, swore to take revenge on Russia. And I know that a lot of those players play the really long game. So that that was how I'd heard it. So if we if we will you know believe the dates and the calendar and the timeline uh, the Khazarians defeated i believe they call it kiev rus which is the early term for russians right and the russians were defeated 100 years later i believe it was so it was 800 AD and then 100 years later in 900 AD the Russians defeated the Khazars mm -hmm. and retook that area. And then eventually in the early nine, well, the mid nine, well, not the early 1900s, like 19, what, 10, 1911, 1912, 1913, 1913, mm -hmm. we have the beginning of the Bolshevik takeover of Russia, which theoretically is like another, iteration of this battle right right and that these these were the agents of the khazars who wanted to retake russia again which they did right in 1917 and this you know and they they held serve in russia for a while 
And now we have Putin theoretically again um, coming in and wanting certain territory back. Because if you go to, to what was it, uh, 20, 2014, as Russia regains their territory after they become independent, now you have the Newlands and the Kagan, well, the Kagans, which we talked about last time, yeah. short for K- Kaganovich. They're like, we're going to take this place. We want it back. And so, again, it's this battle between uh, the Khazarians and what they call the Kiev Rus. So they go in in 2014 and they run a coup mm-hmm. and they take it back. And And I don't think at that time, I don't think Russia had the wherewithal to deal with them. Um, and so they're like, okay, well, we'll play the long game. And we'll make sure that we get Crimea, which is what they did. Right. And Crimea voted. They're like, hey, we want to be a part of Russia. We don't want to be a part of this other group. Right. So they said yes. And then they've been in this turf war for, what is it, Donbass and Lunetsk, right? And so that's on the other side of this river that separates Ukraine. And now we're, they're back again, right? They're They're engaged in this the struggle, which they've theoretically been in since 800 AD. Right. And, um, and the Khazarians, and well, both the Khazarians uh, and the Soviets were very good at infiltration, mm-hmm. infiltrating the military industrial complex, the banking systems. Uh, and both of them have had their, you know, their fingers in, uh, American life for a while. Right. So, so this is the other thing too, is that apparently the first Orthodox Russian Orthodox church was in Kiev. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, supposedly Putin takes this very seriously mm-hmm. and the liberation of Kiev because of his relationship with the Russian Orthodox church is something that he is supposedly invested in, but then you see him running around, um, you know, with um, the Chabad people all the time, and they've got a very different agenda. So you never really know where Putin is coming from. Do you have a sense? Do you do you get a feeling? Like, is he working for the forces of good? Is you know? Um, I think he's doing everything to support. Uh, his position and the position of the Russian people. Mm-hmm. And if you want to consider that the forces of good, I'm not anti-Russia. I'm not anti-Putin, but I'm also not like, you know, pro-Putin either. Cause a lot of people think of him as the great white hope and the white savior. And he's going to take on the Rothschilds and he's going to end, you know, the uh, he's going to do what Donald Trump couldn't do. Right. Right. And I, and I don't really believe that because if you look at what's happened, everything that supposedly was done against the Russians has benefited them. Mm-hmm. The, ru- the ruble is stronger. Right. Than I it's mean, been. I think that the whole story gets twisty turny when we remember that Ukraine used to be called Rus, like that that used to be. Russia and that Russia at some point took the name. So in terms of just keeping the story straight, you know, it, it's hard to tell. Right. It was called Kiev Rus. That was the name 
And then Russia did take the name. Right. Right. So as I understood it, the Khazars were like a satanic blood sacrifice cult. And then when the Russian president said, enough with this, you need to pick a legit religion. And because the Muslims and the Christians had their big battle going on, that they chose to be Ashkenazi Jews and yet continued to practice their blood sacrifice Satanism, thus giving the Ashkenazi Jews a really bad rep. Um, Does that line up with what you know about? Because I know before you'd mentioned some sort of like lingam worshiping religion, and I wasn't sure if that was quite the same. Well, hmm, that's an interesting question. I I would say that there are these weird parallel kind of tracks going on because they there's a type of shamanism that the Khazarians have been like, it all depends on who's telling the story, right? right? Like, like who's, whose version of history is it? Right. One version of history links them to a type of shamanism that you would find like in the Sami culture, you know, who you would find in a place like Finland. Mm-hmm. Um, a, another person telling the story would give you a much darker version of that. Mm-hmm. That it's not just, you know, working with the, you know, the seasons and the solstices and the equinoxes and uh, herbs and uh, drumming, right? I mean, things that we would associate with that particular group in that part of the world, but it becomes much darker and that there would be things like the sacrifice of animals, people, um, so again, a lot of depends on who's, who's telling the story, but we know that they were not Christian, right? They were not Christian. They were not Muslim. They were, they were not Jewish. They, they had animus practices and more than likely they were phallus worshipers mm-hmm. because we've, that, that is a theme through the pagan world, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's like a Morris dance which is a fertility dance around a pole. What do you think the pole is? Right. <laughs> right. So, so it's not uncommon. Um, it's just to the degree that they, that they would, you know, have their practice, but then you get into some characters later on who definitely fall into a camp where they change traditional Judaism. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's when you get into, um, like, you know, sabotage V, right? And Jacob Frank. Okay. Like, these two people, these two characters are, they, they, they get into, um, what is it? The Zohar. They're very into the Zohar. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, I, ha- I don't have any direct experience with the Zohar, but from what I understand, it is very much connected to like Babylonian magic and the summoning of the dead and summoning of spirits and circles, right? This is the, what the Zohar is about. So they're both very into the Zohar um, and they're both very into intense sexual practice, mm-hmm. right? So they're, they're into um, uh, uh, polygamy, they're into polygamy, they're into orgies. And you can see like the roots of Chabad in this group mm-hmm. because part of their epistemology 
is that they're supposed to create the conditions of their lives, which are deplorable, mm -hmm. right? They need to be deplorable because their, their degree of being deplorable will be equal to their degree of redemption. So they'll indulge in things like polygamy and they'll indulge in these orgiastic kinds of practices because it's counter to what the religion of the day was telling them to do. Mm -hmm. Like they, Jacob Franken and, and Sabotai Z were both excommunicated. And Sabotai Z, I think, writes his most important doctrine in 1666. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this is a group that definitely falls, and they're not connected by the way, they're separated, I think, by maybe about a hundred years. Mm -hmm. but but both of them and the, if i'm not mistaken i think it's jacob frank who winds up back in that region of like northern turkey he winds up back there right he that's where he eventually because i think it's jacob frank that has to become a muslim he has to become a muslim in order to like save himself, but he, he does it. And he's actually lives, I guess, a pretty good life after, you know, because they were going to string these guys up. Mm -hmm. um, and they both got excommunicated by the, the, you know, the, the, the Jewish faith that the rabbis were like, you guys are vile, right? We don't want any part of you. So um, they excommunicate both of them, but you can see that the, Roots of Chabad are with both of these characters because that's the that's the kind of the the foundation of Chabad. That the world has to be worse than it is now, so it can be cleansed. And part of the creation of that is there. So there's a worldly salvation, which is what is it? Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam is the worldly salvation. Right. But but then there's also the personal salvation. Um. So they. So the two are connected and, and is, is this coming out of legit judaism or is this coming out of like no uh, i don't think so Zaharian i don't think it, no, I, I think it's coming out of this thing with the zohar okay and the zohar um is is definitely a heretical tract mm -hmm. and the zohar is connected to again this this babylonian sacrificial this is where there's this tie-in right right because if you go into if you go into the sort of the dark annals of babylon you'll find a lot of the same things you'll find the 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 phallic the phallus worship you'll you'll definitely find the sacrifice of animals you'll find the sacrifice of children right and there's a, when you get into to this day right in circumcision there are some moils who will practice a circumcision and then they will suck the blood off of the penis yep. of the young circumcised male. That's like the interface, right? You're mm -hmm. not sacrificing the child, but you're sacrificing part of the child. Mm -hmm. You're sacrificing the foreskin. And then it's a blood ritual, right? So there are these things that, that, that are, there are these crossovers. Can we say, well, this person went from, you know, this part of, um, Ukraine down through Georgia, through like Northern Iran and into, 
you know, what we would call contemporary Israel. I know, like, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't have like the person in the migration route, but clearly there are things that connect these various cultures. Mm -hmm. And you have these characters like Jacob Frank and Sabbatai V, who they're heretics. Mm-hmm. Like they are in, in, in their heretical adaptation of Judaism, you can find some of the practices that would be evident in places like Babylon mm-hmm. and, and potentially Khazaria, you know, pre-Judaism or even in other parts of Khazaria pre-Islam, mm-hmm. right? So there are those things that do connect them. And those two characters are very, very important. Mm -hmm. And when you look at sort of the modern day representation of who those people are, and I would say that in the United States, um, they're not even really part of the government, but they're heavily, heavily influenced government. You go back to um, somebody like, you know, Victoria Newland Mm -hmm. or, or the Kagans, right. Um, Because they they're, they're from that area. Yeah. And, and, you know, do they indulge in these practices? I don't know. But I do know that they were involved in 9-11. Mm-hmm. And 9-11 is sacrificial. Well, and then there's also the Clintons and their, you know, their involvement in Ukraine a few years back. like that. Yeah, well, they were the champions of the neocons. They liked the neocons. Mm-hmm. Every administration has loved the neocons, except for Trump. Trump was not a huge supporter of the neocons. Although he had to take on John Bolton, who who was a neocon in the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. But I think he had to do that as a payback, not because he had any good feeling for um, John Bolton. But Trump is a, tr- Trump is a Habbatist. His children are Habbatists. And how are you defining a Habbatist? Well, they 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 support the Habbat temples. Mm-hmm. I mean, they give money to the Habbat temples. And is Trump himself? Because it seems like, I mean, I don't know much about it, but it seems like Ivanka took this weird kind of sideways turn and Jared Kushner. And then, uh, you know, I don't I don't even well, know what to believe about Trump, if he's a force of good, if he's a giant, you know. Yeah, that's a whole other show. But I mean, yeah, exactly. But all of his all of his children uh, married into Judaism. Right. And like, so this is yeah. like, is it legit Judaism? Like that's kind well, of what do we call what do we call legit Judaism now? Right, what is the definition this, of that? Well, I think that's not this Ashkenazi Hazarian lineage that kind of takes the hit for everything terrible that ever happens on the planet. So I think if you want to go into and may, and may, there may be some people that might disagree with me on this, mm-hmm. but if you wanted to go into legit what we'd call legit Judaism, you'd probably have to go into the Essenes, mm-hmm. and you would have to that's how far back you'd have to go. Yep. And it would be, I think it's a, a very different kind of practice, right? It's mm-hmm. a whole, whole different practice. There was this one thing that I found. What, what was this? It was, I think, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Here it is. So this, this is a very interesting website. Do you want screen share? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think this could give people some very um, interesting things to think about in terms of, like tribes, people in tribes. We might be able to connect this to things like Iberia and even Ireland. Okay, um, cool. Is that, is that okay? Yeah, please. Okay, so can I share now? Yeah, I think so. Let's see. 
So I ran across this website and um, it's called the Ukraine and Kazaria GKM. It's, it's not, it's just not a huge blog, but it has some interesting connections here. Talks about Arthur Kessler who wrote the 13th tribe. Mm -hmm. And he's really the first person that, that goes down this path. And he, Arthur Kessler is um, clearly he's Ashkenazi and he, he was part of the Zionist Congress. He was a big time Zionist. And then he broke ranks. He's like, no, I don't, I don't think this is the way. Mm-hmm. And through his um, research, he, he discovers that in, in his research, that the Ashkenazi people are descended from the Khazars. So there, there is no, there is no like Jewish people based on how we had defined them. That's, that's Kessler. So this is connected to that and has some other, um, um, some other pieces here. So um, although his view is called a theory, it is one supported by the Jewish encyclopedia itself. So the Jewish encyclopedia is chiming in here. Uh, Chazars, a, a people of Turkish origin, whose life and history are interwoven with the very beginnings of the history of the Jews in Russia. The kingdom of the Chazars was firmly established in most of South Russia long before the foundation of the Russian monarchy by the uh, Varangians. So this is what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably about the time, seventh century, that the Chagon of the Chazars and his grandees together with a large number of his heathen people embraced the Jewish religion. Mm-hmm. So that's from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Okay. The Jewish Encyclopedia goes on to quote from the letter 960 AD written by King Joseph of the Chazars. So this is not Bulon, but King Joseph. Okay. To, to Hasdai Ibn Shaprut, to the Jewish court doctor in Cordoba, Spain. Joseph does not trace Chazar ancestry to Hebrew people, but to Chazar, the seventh son of Togarma. Togarma is interesting because now we're into the lineage of Noah. Okay. So Togarma was the brother of Ashkenaz. So we get Ashkenazi from one of the offspring of Noah. Okay. Who is the son of Gomer, the son of Japheth. Gomer himself is not to be confused with Hosea's Gomer, was the brother of Magog, Mesech, and Tubal. These along with Togarma himself are the names prominent in Ezekiel 38 and 39, where we find them invading the land of Israel. The Chazars today make up the Eastern European Jews known as Ashkenazim, named after Togarma's brother, right? So we see his brother here, Ashkenaz. Mm -hmm. Ezekiel's prophecy of so-called Russian invasion of Israel was actually fulfilled when the Russian Jews conquered Palestine through immigration, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. In fact, modern Jews are a combination of Judah, Edom, and Khazar, Togarma, Magog. Modern Zionism is, in fact, the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38-39. So this is kind of an interesting look, right, at the the genesis of of modern Jews. Mm -hmm. So we can see the combination of Judah, like the tribes of Judah, the tribes of Edom or the Edomites, the Khazarians slash Tomarga, Magog, that that's the group that they come out of. So this is interesting because, you know, we, we see uh, Togarma, who is the brother of Ashnas, the son of Gomer, the son of Japheth, Japheth being one of the direct descendants 
of Doha. JPeth theoretically settles in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you look at Noah, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the description of Noah is that he is fair skinned and has red hair. Mm-hmm. And some people believe that, that Noah is an albino and that he is a mutation. Mm-hmm. That could be true. I don't, I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to put how I'm not going to put my, my life savings on that, mm-hmm. but it's an interesting thing to think about, right? Like he's this mutation that everybody before him is very dark, mm-hmm. but he's, but he's not. So um, his, his offspring are light. They're light skinned and they're, they tend to be fair haired, right? Except for one. Who is it? It's uh, I think it's ham. Ham is dark. Mm-hmm. That's another son of Noah. Um, so Jpeth settles in Ireland. That's where he, and then his, these are his sons, right? Mm-hmm. Right. He, so his son, Jpeth's son is Gomer, Magog, Mesech, and Tubal. Tubal um, is the same Tubal as in Tubal Cain. Um, and this is uh, one of the uh, entities that is very popular in Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. But JPEth is very interesting because Magog is a giant, right? He is a giant. And when we, we talked about this last time, didn't we, with the Irish giant? Yeah. Right. And there's this whole tradition of these giants in, in Ireland. Uh, and Magog is one of them. So we can see here, right, through this lineage uh, that the the Khazars are also connected, right? Mm-hmm. From this from this lineage. But then there's also, but the, but these characters are not Jewish, right? Like Jpeth is not Jewish. Okay. He is not Jewish. Um, you know, I'm, but I don't believe Jpeth is Christian either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what kind of texts or tracks did they believe in? Were they Essenes? Maybe. All right. They they could have been. Um, you, you have to remember he's descended from Noah. And theoretically, Noah is also Utnapishnam. And Utnapishnam is connected to um, Enlil and Anki and the whole Babylon, the whole Sumerian story, mm-hmm. right? So what are they really onto? Like, what do they really study? What is, you know, what is their knowledge base? I don't believe it's Christianity because this is all pre-Christian. They're, exactly. They're, these are pre-Christian entities. Now, Noah is part of the Old Testament. But he's he's not he's not studying the Old Testament, okay? Right. Like he's living the Old Testament. Right. So again, bringing this back to Khazar or the Khazarians, like there's some connection here. It's connection between theoretically the descendants of Noah who spread out and have these different tribes, mm-hmm. and they live in different places, including the Fertile Crescent and this area that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then um, JPath later in the uh, supposedly JPath later and through the descendants of JPath who become who are who we would call the Irish, mm-hmm. they wind up going to some of these places and reconnecting with like the descendants of Noah and spreading knowledge because they one of them I think. Is it ham? One of them is, one of them is dark physically, but there's also 
one of the brothers is dark from a spiritual perspective. Okay. Right. Yeah. But um, so this is quite interesting in how these things are inter interconnected. Mm -hmm. Right. So somewhere along the way, the Khazars who are theoretically part of this connection between the sons of Noah take up Judaism. Mm -hmm. so one of the things that I find most striking about the whole Khazarian narrative and the Jewish narrative is that we're allegedly not allowed to talk about it, that it right. is the third rail, which for me is always eyebrow raising, um, you know, and that, that you bring it up and you're just instantly branded an anti-Semite. And, and most of the sort of, you know, like conventional stuff that I found on the web about it, not the deep conspiracy stuff, is a bunch of rabbis saying that it's like hate-mongering anti-Semitism. And they just kind of sweep it away in this way that also doesn't really jive. Well, I mean, when you, this is a big language thing. So what's a Semite? Who's a Semite? If, if I am pro-Palestinian, aren't they Semitic people? Right. Right. So how could I be an anti-Semite? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing just seems like a big kind of shell game distraction of like, don't talk about this thing, buy into this one specific narrative. Um, and then you, you still have the ongoing narrative of like, it's the Jews, it's the Jews, the Jews are at fault, the Jews are to blame. It just feels like it's super fuzzy. Well, it, it is super fuzzy because there are people... And they've reached out to me and they said, oh, don't, don't fall, don't fall for that trap because it's really the British, right? It's the British and it's the Jesuits. And what they've done is they've created this straw man and people are going after the wrong straw man. I'm not sure I really believe that. Um, but that, you know, opens up the discussion of like a network, right? A network of influencers, have you and seen this map? I've seen something similar to it. So how, I mean, how legit is this? I don't, I mean, it, it immediately makes my head spin out where I'm like, I don't even know how to track this. Right. So the Canaanites are going to be the children of Cain, right? Mm -hmm. And, and they're cannibals and Satanists. Well, here we have the ball worship. And right. ball, ball worship gets into what we were talking about, which is animism, dark, dark paganism, you know, Necron and Micron stuff, mm -hmm. and also phallic worshiping. Um, the cannibalism thing, like I can't like directly attribute that to the Canaanites, but I think the cannibalism thing is much bigger and pervasive than we've ever really thought about. In terms of like a, a force of darkness that yes, continues yes. to operate. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that yes. goes beyond just the adrenochrome, but to actually like eating flesh. Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, so what do we have here? Then you have the, the Hyksos coming out of the, out of ball worship. Can we, um, I, I want to go back to the cannibalism if I could for a minute, yeah, just because yeah. The more that I learn about it and the, okay, that cannibalism is part of it and adrenochrome is part of it and ball worship is part of it is like, how does this realm even work without that overlay? You know, like how, how do we function? That, that's a that real, I, I think that's a really good question, right? I mean, are these all the mechanisms 
that keep this realm kind of operating at that level? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. And I, you know, I threw this out on Twitter a couple of days ago and my question was, well, let's say these people, whatever they are, these entities, whatever they are, let's just say one day they vanished and we just all kind of are looking around like, where did they go? Right. Right. Like what would this place be like? How would we operate it? Exactly. Yeah. I, I wonder if the laws of nature would even be the same. You know, I, 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 but just because for how long these entities have been running the world with these, you know, these rituals and these sacrifices, like I'm very curious to know about that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. would, would gravity shift? Well, w- wouldn't it be like an interesting thing to find out about? I, I mean, I would love to see it in this lifetime. Me too. <laughs> so this is, this is the network. Um, yeah. So this is, this is interesting. This is really, so yeah. So here you have the paganism that connects the Romans and the Khazars, right? This whole paganistic thing, polytheistic, worshiping various gods. Um, and then you have the Vatican, which is the center, right? The center of theoretically. So when you get into the whole Tartaria thing, mm-hmm. it, it, it tends to be very interesting because there is, there is no Rome, right? Okay. Like, like there, like Rome is a made up story. Like it never happened. It's just a myth. Yeah. It's a myth. Okay. So this is where we get into um, this guy Scaliger, which we sort of touched on last time. Mm-hmm. And Scaliger. So what's interesting about Scaliger and Anatoly Fermenko, who wrote all these books about the new time mm-hmm. and um, Fermenko was he Fermenko. He's still alive, by the way, he was a mathematician and he was drafted by the KGB okay. and he was told by the KGB to monitor news clippings coming out of the West. Mm-hmm. So United States, England, blah, blah, blah. Right. And he would read this stuff and he knew that they were printing propaganda, just like they print propaganda in Russia. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, wow, well, there's all this propaganda that they're spewing out. I wonder if they've always been propagandists. Mm-hmm. And so he went in and he started to look at what we would call history. And he began, there's, there's, he's got like, I don't know, 11, 12, like editions of the new time Mm -hmm. and he gets very granular and he looks at uh, things like comets um, and he basically, so I think Formanko is interesting, but I'm also wary of him because he's, he, at that time he's Russian, he works for the KGB and his version of history is that everything is Russia. Like everything is Russia and everything that we have created is a story that cuts Russia out of the story, right? That's for Manko's. That's a bold statement. So, well, e- so Egypt's not a thing. No, no, Egypt's not a thing. Jesus isn't a thing. And one of the people that he points to is this character named Scaliger, mm-hmm. who is a historical figure, and he shows up in the 1600s, 
and he is supposedly um, a, um, a scholar, right? And he's the first person that supposedly understands Hebrew. And so because he supposedly understands Hebrew, he begins to tell the story about what's happened in the Middle East and the Fertile Crescent and the Jewish people. Like, it's this one guy. But he's also telling the story about what happened in Persia. So he is essentially writing these tracks that are going to be, you know, the, the story of supposedly how history unfolded. And he winds up getting a bunch of young scholars mm-hmm. who are, he surrounds himself with these young scholars. And I think they're cranking out mostly bullshit. <laughs> because what's interesting about Scaliger is that um, he never debated anybody. He would not debate anyone. And um, he would teach privately. He was, he was offered um, like, I guess it'd be the the equivalent of professorships by certain Kings Mm -hmm. or Dukes and he would take them up on it. But if anybody wanted to put his version of history to the test, he wouldn't do it. And at that time, the Jesuits were also vying for their own version of history. Mm-hmm. So, so the Jesuits and Scaliger did not see eye to eye and the Jesuits would, would, would take Scaliger on. And what's interesting about Scaliger is that uh, one of his descendants is Edward Bernays and not very far down the line. We're talking about, I think it's two generations, um, maybe three. I think it's three generations of Bernays shows up. Okay. So what do we know about Bernays? Well, Bernays is one of the, founders of Tavistock, right? And Bernays is one of of the creators of the 20th century. Like we don't- Yeah, the whole propaganda sitch. Right, like we don't don't have bacon and eggs if it's not for Bernays. Mm -hmm. Because- um, Right, just the pairing, just the like the imposition of those being inextricably bound. It's Bernays. Because, because if you go back and look at how people ate breakfast in the early part of the 20th century, it was not really a thing. They would have maybe a cup of coffee, maybe some juice, maybe some tea and a piece of bread, right? And maybe there'd be some jam on that. That was it. So in order, it's kind of interesting too, because Bernays being Jewish, I don't think he ate pork, but it, I think it was the, um, I think it was the, the pork farmers that wanted to sell more pork. Right. So, so he, Bernays was really big into the egg because he thought he, he understood that the egg was this symbolic thing that connected everybody to life. Mm-hmm. Right. He would later pick up on, do you know the, the, the uh, cake mix story with Bernays? Do you know that story? No. All right. So we'll finish the bacon and eggs thing. So okay. <laughs> Ber- Bernays thinks long and hard. Well, how can we sell more pork? said, well, we'll popularize eggs to go along with the bacon. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, bacon and eggs takes off. And it's thanks to Bernays that that happens. 
So I think it was like uh, Betty Crocker or General Mills or one of these companies um, comes along and says, look, you know, we have these cake mixes. All you have to do is add water and you put them in the oven and they, they cook, but they're not selling. Can you, can you help us figure out why? So Bernays set up a series of interviews with women and he asked them like, you know, would you, would you cook this? Would you make this at home? And they, they all said, well, no. Well, why not? Well, we'd feel guilty. Well, why would you feel guilty? Because we're not doing it from scratch. Mm-hmm. So Brene said, well, if you were to make a thing, what would you use from scratch? And you know, a number of them said, well, we would use an egg. So Brene said, oh, well, let's do this. What if you added an egg to this mixture? They'd be like, oh, well, yeah, we might be able to do that because they wanted to be involved. Right, right. So Bernays told, you know, General General Mills, General Foods or whatever, um, Betty Crocker, tell them to add an egg. Put an egg on the recipe box and you'll be fine. Because he also knew that that egg was connected to their femininity, you know, their idea of being a woman. And Bernays, Bernays was, I think, what did John Coleman say? He's a double cousin of Freud. So yeah, he's, sure. he's, he's related to Freud. He would, he would actually talk to Freud about certain things. Yeah. So just by adding the egg and putting it on, on the directions of the box, they sold, they sold, they sold the cake mix. Right. Right. So that's Bernays and he's got his hands in a bunch of stuff. Like he's also the guy that starts the first color revolution. Like, well, I mean, I think the Bolsheviks were a bit of a color revolution, but Bernays does it in a very distinct way. He creates the blueprint for it. And it has to do with, um, um, what is it? United, United fruit. Isn't that what they were called? United fruit and United fruit were this company that specialized in like bananas became a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And bananas became a big deal. I think like the thirties, very exotic, like it became huge. And a lot of the bananas came out of Guatemala. Mm-hmm. So the president of Guatemala, I forget his name, um, wanted to, he like, I want to nationalize the banana industry because, you know, United Fruit are coming down here and they're taking all these bananas. We're getting like pennies on the banana. And so he was talking about nationalizing the, the bananas. Mm-hmm. So United Fruit got a hold of it and the news, and they said to Bernays, like, hey, you got to help us out. Like, you know, we want to maintain control of bananas in Guatemala. So Bernays thought about it. He said, okay, I can do this. So he went to Guatemala. And the first thing he did is he employed um, a bunch of journalists from the United States uh, to come to Guatemala. And he hired people in Guatemala to uh, put up communist propaganda because the communists of course were everywhere. And Bernays created a scenario where um, the communists were getting cozy with the president of Guatemala, which wasn't true. But, but then what happened is that they brought these journalists down here, down to Guatemala 
and they they saw where people had like spray painted shit and done certain things and they went back to the united states and started writing these stories that the red threat was in guatemala and that the president of guatemala needed to be deposed so i think they also tightened the screws on them with wheat or something like that because there's always all food is always in the mix they make people hungry and they revolt right i think there was there was part of that and the president of guatemala had no connections to the russians or communism at all but now he's getting all this heat he's thinking that guatemala can be invaded he could be deposed they're tightening the screws a little bit on the food side now his own people are starting to rebel against him he split he left right so bernays basically stage managed a coup and he that model was used from that point forward he was a very very clever clever intelligent guy he's also he was also the guy that was in charge of getting women to smoke totally right yeah. he was also the guy that that created the storefront window mm-hmm. for department stores so um he also was involved in the creation of tavistock mm-hmm. that and, part i didn't know yeah he's on the ground floor with tavistock and tavistock is like the modern day Scaliger, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're creating the story. Yeah. That we're living in right now. It's crazy what a giant psyop it is, you know? And then just like, as you, as you just took us back to Bernays, like seeing how it's all this like giant mass psychological manipulation. Right there. It, it is. It's a, it's a massive manipulation. much for tuning into this episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I trust you enjoyed my conversation with Robert Phoenix. You can find the second half of our conversation on my locals, dannykatz.locals.com, where for as little as $2 a month, you get access to the second half of this conversation and all of my conversations. You can also find it over on Patreon, patreon.com slash dannykatz. Before you navigate on over to catch the second half, be sure to hit that like button, that subscribe button. And while you're at it, you probably want to head over to dannykatz.com to subscribe to my newsletter so that you can stay abreast of my every podcast, workshop, webinar, coaching offering, book, and any of the myriad bits of content creation that I maniacally and pathologically put out. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you over on the other platforms for the second half of my conversation with Robert Phoenix. Have a rockin' day, tribe. Check out my website, dannycats.com. As well, track all of my latest content on my Locals page, dannycats.locals.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you soon, tribe.